And I think that's a really, really important moment to have. And not that it's only one moment. It kind of <laughs> needs to happen over and over again. But um, that's what it was for me. And I remember sitting the very few first few months when I was in Japan, um, sitting in the zendo in the morning, and it was so cold, and I was in so much pain, and I just was crying, you know, tears streaming down my face because it was so painful, but also because like myself was painful. I was painful, but also kind of being like, wow, I need to figure this out. What it means to be myself and inhabit this mind and this body. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I am your host, Ian White-Marr, and this week my guest is Geshen Claire Greenwood. Geshen has been practicing Vipassana and Zen for over 12 years. She's an ordained Zen priest and spent over five years in Japan training in monasteries, studying, and teaching. Geshen is involved with the Blue Cliff Sangha in Long Beach, California, where she teaches alongside Roshi James Ishmael Ford. She is the author of Bow First, Ask Questions Later, Reluctant Wisdom on Ordination, Love, and Zen Training in Japan. This podcast is sponsored by the Providence Zen Center, a residential Buddhist community in Cumberland, Rhode Island. The Providence Zen Center provides opportunities for short and long-term residency and holds retreats from one day to three months. For more information, please visit ProvidenceZen.org. Geshen, I'd uh, like to begin our conversation, I'd like to begin all these conversations with Why? Like, why do this? Why, you know, what drew you to the path? Why, uh, why do all this practice? Um, <laughs> well, do you want the Zen answer or do you want like the real answer, which is different? I, I say that because <laughs> every time I ask my teacher in Japan a why question, he would always go, reason is why. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, his English isn't very good. Um, so that that's programmed in my head as a response to any kind of why question. Um, but I, I think, um, I mean, Zen practice developed out of uh, broader Buddhist practice. And I think why I am attracted to Buddhist practice, like most people, is because it's a response to human suffering. And I came to it when I was 19 years old, and I was suffering. And... um, I touched something in meditation that I'd never experienced before that um, made me feel better. So (laughs) very simple, um, actually, at the beginning. But then um, as I got more and more into it, it became a whole more complicated, deeper uh, life path. So there was a a question about the suffering you were feeling, and then you saw the practice as as helping and... And then that just started the the path. I mean, a lot of people start on meditation practice because they sort of sit there, but they don't really decide to move to Japan. Yes, <laughs> that's true. And so I, uh, when I first started, I think like most um, Americans who come to meditation, it was kind of a uh, 
not a hobby, but it was something I did in my free time that I enjoyed. And I, I mean, I was quite serious, actually. I, you know, I did meditation retreats on my spring break during college, which I think is kind of unique for a college student to do. And I, I studied abroad in India my junior year um, in Bodh Gaya, where the Buddha was enlightened. Mm. Um, and more and more, it became just everything I wanted to think about, especially when I got involved in reading more about the ethical system, um, because I was doing all of this racial justice work um, and seeing, seeking a way to figure out how to um, engage with that in a better and saner way. And I really saw Buddhist teaching as offering a way to do that. So it, it was getting, the momentum was building and building. Um, and then I, I graduated from college, and I talk about this in my book, but I graduated from college and I um, went to India to teach and I, I hated it. So I went to visit um, my boyfriend at the time who was living in Japan and he had stayed at a monastery there. Um, so he hooked me up with the, the abbot there and I stayed for, I think, six months just as a lay person, um, sort of feeling it out. And I eventually went back to the United States and um, it's interesting, I tried to write a novel um, and I, the not the main character of the novel was uh, kind of like me, very, very, very intelligent and young, but very unhappy. And I, I couldn't figure out what to do with the character to make her have any kind of positive character growth. Like I couldn't even imagine. I, I came up with all these scenarios, like she was going to move to France or like she was going to have an affair or like all of these things, but in all of the trajectories, like nothing developed. So I, I realized that actually I didn't know for myself um, what positive growth looked like. Um, or what overcoming suffering looked like. So that was when I kind of realized I had to go back to the monastery and and give it more time um, so that I could write the story of my life, um, which I ended up doing. So yay. So why why did you believe that the practice was going to help you? Well, I think because I had experienced already a little um, taste of it. I mean, I think anybody who goes back to, you know, their second or third meditation retreat is not doing it on a whim anymore. And right. I read, the, you know, the things I read resonated with me. And I, to be honest, I had a just a lot of uh, blind faith, or if I'm being more, you know, kind to myself, maybe Sharon Salzberg calls it um, bright faith, um, that first sort of feeling of of love for the teachings. So I had a lot of faith and I, a lot of maybe stupid faith, but also, ex, you know, profound experiences in meditation and um, really relating to what these texts were saying. You know, the practice is an interesting thing though, right? Because I think a lot of people don't like to practice because once they sit down, all of a sudden they start really seeing how their mind is, right? <laughs> Yeah. And, and the you know, once that becomes clear, they're like, oh, no, this is not something I want to do. But yeah. for some people, it's the other thing. They sit down and they're like, oh, 
wow, I really do want to do this. Well, yeah. And I think for me, because of that story I told about um, writing, trying to write that book, I realized that I was the problem. Um, (laughs) That, Mm. you know, in in more than one way, like only I could write this book and I couldn't do it. So who who else is going to write the book? And um, so similarly with my mind and my my sadness, I sort of realized that it was up to me. Um, and I think that's a really, really important moment to have. And not that it's only one moment, it kind of <laughs> needs to happen over and over again. But um, that's what it was for me was was sort of being like, wow, my mind. And I remember sitting the very few first few months when I was in Japan, um, sitting in the zendo in the morning and it was so cold and I was in so much pain and I just was crying, you know, tears streaming down my face because it was so painful, but also because like myself was painful. I was painful, but also kind of being like, wow, I need to figure this out, what it means to be myself and inhabit this mind and this body. Um, and was there a, a, a time that, where it started to really, where the the pain shifted a little bit, and and it was, you know, I'm waiting for that point. No, I'm just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> me too. I'm waiting for that too. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and the, I think it goes in waves. To be honest, um, I do remember. Well, I could answer that a couple of different ways. Um, yeah. For for monastery life, I think it sort of just you gradually acclimate um especially if you're a foreigner so i was a foreigner practicing in a traditional japanese monastery and you know you sit on the ground um there are no chairs so just physically it's painful because not only are you sitting cross-legged in meditation but also during meals during meetings you're sitting on the floor so my feet hurt but that you get used to that over time. So that happened gradually. And then in terms of, you know, psychologically, um, I mean, body and mind aren't totally disconnected, but there were, there were certain moments after a couple of years where I, I was, it took years, but (laughs) eventually I kind of was like, Oh, I can do this. And, um, yeah, I can do this. But then that joke I made initially is also true, which is that, you know, making friends with myself is still, still the practice. And it's still, now that I'm back in the U.S., I, I see how much that is a sort of unending, unending practice is, is being kind to myself. Um, Zen practice didn't do a lot to remedy that problem, ironically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know what your experience has been with that, but. Oh, it gosh, it goes in and out. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just, this, just this last week, I was like, oh my God, what am I, have I learned anything at all? Now the truth is, of course I have, but, um, it just, I feel, I feel like the more practice I do, the greater capacity I have. Uh, But sometimes it just, it's hard to notice. Yeah. Yeah. The greater capacity. But you know, that, that point you were just making, you you have this really good article in, uh, Lion's Roar, Mm -hmm. um, that, uh, it's called. Uh, uh, will you talk about the difference between beginner's mind or or that fine line between beginner's yeah. mind and self criticism? Yeah. And I thought that was really. I think that's a really helpful point, a really helpful 
uh, perspective for people who are uh, starting because it can feel so overwhelming. Um, and sometimes that, you know, it doesn't necessarily go away. Um, yeah. And I mean, I, I think that the conclusion I come to in that article for, for those who haven't read it is, is that um, beginner's mind should be expansive. It should invoke a feeling of um, possibility and aliveness. Whereas um, self-criticism obviously is, it's narrow. It's, um, it diminishes possibility rather than expands it. And you can kind of feel the difference once you are looking for it. And there's this, I have, I copied out this, this passage from that article that I really like because um, I think very often we want to put teachers on a pedestal and we don't really reconcile ourselves to the fact that the teachers are also practitioners, you know? Mm. And so you have this, uh, this passage that goes, uh, some days uh, a Buddhist teacher is the last thing in the world I want to be. Uh, I want to be that young practitioner again who would go into an interview with a teacher and unload all of my problems, hoping for some relief. Um, and I just, um, I just wonder how your practice has changed now that uh, you're you're a teacher for people. People see you as a teacher. You still have a practice, though. Yeah, although you're right that dealing with my own aversion to be, to being a teacher is now a huge part of it. Um, and even I, I sent James Ford, who I, I teach with, um, a text last month, and I was like, I'm not wearing robes. I'm not wearing, you know, like the next sit we do, I'm not um, going to do doshi. I'm not going to wear robes. I uh, kind of was just ready to burn it all down, which um, <laughs> <laughs> which may be, a, you know, it's a, it's a very zen uh, thing to yeah. do. To want to do and you know I, I joke that I'm sort of in my Stephen Bachelor phase where I'm because I did go through this whole intense intensive intensive traditional training where you know I didn't change out of monastic clothing for five years I d had shaved my head for half a decade and mm -hmm. begged and was celibate so you know I, I have fully lived that life and so now I'm sort of starting to uh, rethink um the benefits and drawbacks of that in a way I couldn't when I was fully in it. Um, so as a teacher, you know, I, I, I think I honestly, I teach best through my writing and that's why I do it so much. I'm still, and I'm young, I'm new, I'm, I'm 31 and I, I've only been teaching for about a year maybe. And it, it's mostly through James Ford's um, like prodding. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> because he really wants to involve, he's really concerned about, um, he calls it the great die off. Um, the, what does that mean? The, the baby boomers who are all in charge oh, of then yeah. that they're all going to die. And then th there's yeah. not going to be, there are very few, you know, Gen X and even fewer millennial teachers out there. So he's, he's quite concerned with that. And so he's been trying to encourage me, um, to, to varying success <laughs> to step into this role. So I think, honestly, sorry, after that rambling response, I think what being a teacher, the real practice of being a teacher for me is to um, get over my, my doubt and my self-criticism enough to be encouraging to people. Because uh -huh. um, that's all that people want is they want to be encouraged, right? So 
if I can get to encouraging, then I'm like, ah, yes. <laughs> um, well, they come, I, they come to you with more than that, though. They want more than encouragement. I mean, it's hard practice. Yeah. I mean, I, people text me a lot or, you know, Facebook message me a lot uh, or through my blog. Um, what will they ask me? After that article was published, people asked me about similar things about, you know, I've been asked to lead this sitting group and I don't know what to do or, mm. um, or even um, like... I just had a nervous breakdown. Uh, can you recommend a monastery in Japan? To which I responded, no. Um, <laughs> uh, no, you can't recommend it or no, because that's a bad idea after a nervous a, breakdown. It's a bad idea. Yeah. yeah. I, I recommended some other places in the US that would be yeah. easier. But a lot of people do write me asking about Japan. And I say, you know, it's all there on the website. It's right. It's very easy to access. All you have to do is go. And then, but most people don't want to go. So, well, you, well, it's, you had a particular experience there. You were, you were in monasteries for five years. You were in a convent for three. Right. Yeah. So I, I trained at Aichini Soro, which is the women's um, monastery in Nagoya. Oh, what, what was that like? Practice. Uh, like what was, <laughs> what was the, what's the life like? Right. It's very hard, very, very hard. And, and that is the main subject of my book, to be honest, is the that three years and how how I adapted to it. Um, it's incredibly strict and um, hierarchical. So where you sit um, is determined by your um, place in the hierarchy. So where you sit at the table, um, where you put your shoes, what order you take the bath in, um, determined by hierarchy, what language you use to talk to people changes. That's just Japanese culture. But, um, and then, I mean, like all monasteries, you wake up at 4 a.m. and then you sit and chant and um, work. So it's a lot of work. Um, a whole, it's, it's constant work. <laughs> Cooking, cleaning. Um, but, but you stayed for three years, so. I did, yeah. Was there, sorry, was there more to that? No, I just, well, I guess implied is like, uh, you must have been seeing value or it was answering some question for your practice or what your, what your bigger question was. Yeah. So like I was talking about in the beginning, I, I went to Japan cause I had this, um, I wanted to, f you know, figure out how to deal with myself and to, I said, write the story of my life, which is kind of overly dramatic, but, you know, to, to mm -hmm. become an adult who I was, you know, proud of. Um, and uh, when I first entered Nisoto, I was just, I was completely wrecked by it. Uh, it was, I cried every day and I, I got in fights with people all the time and because it's very strict and I, you know, I'm kind of uh, stubborn. So I, I pushed back against a lot of the strictness and caused a lot of conflict and et cetera, et cetera. So, Eventually, I was kind of like, well, maybe I am, again, maybe I am the problem. And um, then I, I started to focus on my own work and my own um, mental processes. Processes. Um, I sort of shifted the focus from being external to internal. And that was what got me through. And that's what enabled me to thrive was just that shift. Um, but that took a really long time. So that is what my my 
you know, takeaway or my, like the treasure I, I bring back from that place is, is that ability to shift um, the focus to myself and my work um, rather than, you know, putting blame outside or um, complaining and being unhappy with other people because other people are always going to suck. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, I often, you know, I live in a, a temple or, you know, American version of a temple. Um, and, you know, there's 20 of us in the main house and another sort of 15 that live next door. And you can, you can do it. You can live here one of two ways. One where everybody else is wrong or, you know, the other where where you're like, what is my role in this? Yeah. Yeah. You know, Sangha, there's a practice on the cushion and then there's a practice in the sangha where you're like, Whew. <laughs> yeah. this is, this is something I have to deal with. Yeah. Sangha work. I like, I like that phrase. Um, because usually we think of practice as this very individual thing. Um, and I don't think enough gets spoken or, or written even about sangha work as its own, its own thing. Um, how to, you know, how to be in a group, how to contribute. And part of that is growing up, or at least was for me. But I think you're right that, that it, is a, it is a different thing living in spiritual community. And spiritual communities are hard because they're often so messed up. Yeah. Um, so you got to be, you have to be savvy, um, really savvy. And, and they, you know, often draw people who uh, are suffering. Yes, always. <laughs> usually, they usually, usually. Yeah. yeah. And it's, you know, it's it can be good and bad like I live here I don't necessarily think of myself as a, a <laughs> deeply uh-huh. disturbed person, but I'm here for a reason, right? Uh-huh. Like I there's something I want to learn about myself and yeah. and, and about humanity. Um and it's a practice. Yeah. Jew Kennett who um was wrote the book Wild White Goose and she one of the first women to practice in Japan said in that book that in Japanese monasteries there's the most enlightened people you will ever meet and the worst people you will ever meet and <laughs> that has been my experience as well <laughs> both uh, both ends and it's interesting though you, you asked how my practice has changed since coming back to America and actually um, something I'm, I'm grappling with now as I'm in this culture and then also after, you know, the election of Trump and just all of the, you know, Me Too movement and all these political cultural shifts is um, I don't know that like internal focus is enough anymore. Um, I mm-hmm. think when I wrote that book, that was sort of my thesis. That was my you know, rallying cry was we have to work on ourselves. Um, no one else can make us happy. But now I'm sort of like, I don't know that that's uh, sufficient. Um, I'm not sure that the inside is cut off from the outside as much as we would like. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I really believe that. I I have a friend, he practices at home all the time. And uh, it's just him. And I think that's wonderful. You know, you live with all these stories about the the Zen masters that go live in the cave Mm -hmm. and, um, and I would, I personally would love more stories about Zen masters who were like, Oh my God, (laughs) I got enlightenment around the, the, the kitchen, you know, (laughs) Uh, cause you learn so much there as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, I have a joke in my book that uh, I have a chapter called Enlightenment is a Male Fantasy, which men don't really like. <laughs> men don't really like that chapter. Um, it's called Enlightenment is a Male Fantasy. And I, I'm comparing sort of the practice styles very anecdotally and unscientifically um, between men and women in Japan and based on my experience. And my experience was that men a lot of times wanted this um you know yeah like you said going practicing in a cave achieving alignment and the women would just be cooking like yeah <laughs> so if you had a con about you know making rice and soup the the men would have some eloquent verbal response but the woman would just be like well here's your soup and your rice and do you want to help me clean up um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know. That's that's kind of a tangent. Um, <laughs> plug no. for my book. <laughs> well, I I think actually, when I get when I think about practice, I think it's about how to live in the world. Mm-hmm. It's it's not just so that I am free, alone, and free. You know, because uh, who is the person who's alone and free? Right. right? Uh, there is a lot of suffering in the world, and what for whatever reason, my faith statement is: I think that if I do this practice, it will help. Mm, I like that, and yeah. and you know, to be fair, I think that um, I'm a big fan of um, not making things all one way. Like, mm. um, I can't remember the name of the woman. She wrote the book Cave and Oh, ten, maybe it's Tenzin Palmo. She wrote Cave in the Snow about her experiences practicing in a cave for three years. And when she got out, or maybe it's 10 years long, I don't know, anyway. When she got out, somebody was like, uh, don't you think this model of living in a cave is like outdated or, or something? And she said, you know, I w- people are, there's always going to be people who want to live in a cave. Um, mm-hmm. And so people are going to keep doing it. And like that, that impulse, um, that calling to go be in a cave, I think is beautiful. And like, we should nourish that when that's there. But when, yeah, when the world is burning and stuff around us needs taking care of too, like that, that's also important. Yeah. So you have this book. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you want to pull out of that book about your practice, about what you think people will find in it? Well, so it came out to yesterday yesterday Uh, it came out yesterday and uh so you know my friends and family um just got their hands on it and the feedback i'm getting it's kind of funny is that it's a page turner which i (laughs) never anticipated it's a it's a it's a funny page tuner that hot convent life (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's a it's an amazing book i'm not gonna lie my editor josh bartek like uh, we oh, were so yeah. yeah. Do you know him? I don't know. I know of him, but I don't know. Yeah. Him. Well, we worked so hard to get it to be not only um, a Buddhist book with you know Zen wisdom and Zen teachings, but also a story um, yeah. that's entertaining to read. So it, it's a it's a story, and it's apparently it's a page turner um, about a young a young nun. So I think it will. I hope it will help people and and be entertaining um but also yeah encourage people um i wrote it to kind of for my 19 year old self um 
Like, I, it's kind of the book I wish I could have read when I was younger, because um, it's about becoming strong. It's about becoming a fighter. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found our conversation with Geshen Claire Greenwood encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more about her teaching and her book, Bow First, Ask Questions Later, at Geshen, that's G-E-S-S-H-I-N dot net. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Providence Zen Center. If you would like to deepen your practice commitment, I encourage you to explore PZC's residential and retreat opportunities. You can find all of that information at ProvidenceZen.org. If you would like some guidance on how to meditate, there are some free videos you can watch at ProvidenceZen.org slash videos. My name is Ian White-Marr. I hope you'll join me again next week. <laughs>